Good evening. I present this in the hope that our great nations may learn to live in peace. I've heard of you. I heard you were dead. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. <laughs> I'm his dad. He's my son. And, uh, and I've made him watch another movie. A dramatic action-packed movie it's done things to me father it's <clears throat> okay i can't keep that all the episode hi <laughs> yeah that would have been bad news yeah that, probably not a good idea but we're returning to the duo of director john carpenter and actor kurt russell yes we visited them a couple of years ago in january for the thing uh I'm I'm remembering back to what we know Kurt Russell from even better. Medfield College! Dexter Riley. Dexter Riley is back! Don't you want to see the John Carpenter version of the Dexter Riley movies? Oh, yeah. I kind of do. <laughs> I kind of want to see the dark implications of you know, super strength serum and super smart ser- uh, uh, computer systems like that. This is... <laughs> That is absolutely fertile carpenter ground in that sense. Well, we did speculate last time about um, uh, McCready from The Thing being Dexter Riley after some really bad war experience. Oh, yeah. But I'm not sure we can fit this uh, new character into that. I'm not... uh, Actually, weirdly enough, a completely different series that takes reference to this might give a fun solution to that, but I'm going (laughs) to hold off on that. But yeah, the the adventures of one Snake Plissken is a very different kind of thing, but not too different. Different enough. Different enough. So that's right. We're talking about Escape from New York. Uh, Here's the weird thing. I usually get to talk about like what I know of the media before we watched it. And I actually knew of this movie's sequel better than I knew of this movie. But in some ways, it's because the posters were more dramatic for the sequel and because it set up a a thematic title that people could parody <laughs> so i'd seen escape from blank memes and i'd seen and i knew these movies exist i knew they were crazy action things i had no idea about the plot and i i pretty much knew he plays a character named snake and it's these two films and i was excited to finally know what I'm looking at. And for me, this is a movie that is another entry in the Midnight HBO Film Festival that I've described before, where nobody else in my house when I was a kid wanted to see this. And I did. I hadn't gotten to see it when it was in theaters, of course. So uh, it was being shown in the middle of the night when nobody else was using a TV. I went to the basement and watched it really close to the TV with the sound low so as not to disturb anyone else at about 1.30 in the morning. You went full Darko mode. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> okay, that gives me something to work with. Yes. Okay, and what age did you watch this at? 
Well, this was 1981 release, and it was probably around then, so I was about 15. And what age should you have been? <laughs> nah. uh, this eh, what it's this is actually this yeah. one's actually not that bad. It is it's action heavy, it's violent, it's a dramatic Mad Max kind of story. But it's also kind of brilliantly ridiculous in a way that kind of undercuts everything. And I'll say that immediately off the bat. This movie felt like a D&D session. In a good way. I can understand that. It's got, it's got a clear set of objectives, but with plenty of little branching side paths. It's got... A lot of its events take place in distinct environments that are... You can't progress from one to the other without dealing with what's in the place you're in. And there is even one moment where it absolutely feels like a set of bad rolls almost derails the campaign and the DM steps in with an entirely new map they made between sessions just to keep the story rolling. I think you've got something there. It's something about a movie that is assembled out of set pieces the way this is. Yeah. Anybody who's played a lot of tabletop RPGs is going to see that connection. I think you're right about this. I liked that aspect of it it's very weird to to say though because it also feels this this also feels weirdly like a stage play it oh. is it is over dramatic the sets are complicated but have these wide open middle areas for everyone to emote within and everyone is just turned up to 11 like you're supposed to be able to read what they're doing from the back row yeah there's something very operatic Yes. It's kind of a staged epic. This is this this is an action opera. And the that means the hero is so clearly drawn as to become iconic. The bad guy is over the top. He's in Bond villain territory. Yeah, it is it is very operatic, very stagey. Oh yeah, and kind of setting those tones early. I mean, if you watch the film, you'll get that from the opening scenes and narration. But if we're going to describe or discuss this film, I almost feel like we need to set those baselines so that when we're describing anything that happens or any action or acting that occurs, you have it set to the right intensity in your <laughs> mind if you haven't seen the film first. And John Carpenter is good at that. He really does set things up in a way that is it's over the top, but everything is crafted in order to be over the top. So it all fits. It's just a particular style. The world is all turned up to the same level. So a single person acting at that amount is not out of tone for the environment and world they're in. This is just the existence of all the people in this story. And that means that you can get into that mode, even if that is heightened compared to reality. So let's talk a little bit about that world that's mm -hmm. been created for this. Because I found this kind of um, kind of educational, watching this in 1981 as a 15-year-old. Gave me some ideas to what kind of world I could look forward to, uh, to, oh, to living in. Uh, because as the, the beginning of this movie sets up, by 1988, the crime rate in the United States has gone up by several hundred percent. And Manhattan Island, they keep saying New York City. 
which tells me that the people who made this don't really know New York City, because New York City is five boroughs, not all of which are on Manhattan Island. Manhattan Island is turned into the United States prison. They just wall off around all the waterways, isolate Manhattan Island, and anybody commits a crime, they go in, they never come out. And the United States police force, whose headquarters is on Liberty Island, ironically, <sighs> manages the whole thing. Oh, and the, the, the United States police force, based on Liberty Island, is run by a guy played by Lee Van Cleef, who, who will be known to Mystery Science Theater fans as the Master Ninja. That's him. I knew I recognized him from something <laughs> yep. and couldn't. Oh, my goodness. He's a great, you know, B-movie action. <laughs> okay, it's him. Yes. So that's our setup. This We really don't get much of a sense as to what the rest of the country is like. But we do know that the Soviet Union and uh, China and the United States are at war. And... Based upon some other details we get, there's some indication, some reason to believe the war is about energy resources. Yeah. And into this, we get Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell, who is being processed in to be sentenced to, or has been sentenced, and is about to be deposited in the prison that is Manhattan. Yeah, he, he like robbed a bank. I get the impression he's done a lot of crimes. The most recent one was robbing a Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah. So he's about to go to prison, but then another crisis occurs. Well, if we're going to introduce Snake Plissken, we've got to introduce him the way everyone does in the movie. Wait, you're Snake Plissken? I thought you were dead. Everybody <laughs> does this over and over. It's like he's got an area of effect where you can't just acknowledge him. You have to... Be astonished and assume he was, and, <laughs> and assume he has come back from the underworld every time. Hey, putting that into uh, RPG terms, it's like he's got a reputation stat. Yeah, exactly. There's a certain chance that anybody with above a certain amount of lore knowledge is going to at least have heard of Snake Plissken, and they may have heard correctly or not that he's dead. Yeah, you can recognize him in a room no matter how low you ro roll on perception. You will see him. Makes me wonder the extent to which Snake Plissken circulated the information that he was dead. That's one way to try to stay ahead of the United States police. Ah, oh, yeah. Playing dead might be an, a tactic he would play, because he, he is tricky. He is, he is not just a pugilist or a, a fighter. He's also clever. He's kind of an Odysseus figure in that sense. He's got, he's got wit behind his brawn. Very much, very much so. And we do learn later that he has extensive military and special forces training because th this crisis that occurs means that they suddenly need him and they don't want to just send him to prison because a plane has been hijacked and is on course to crash into Manhattan. And that plane is Air Force One, holding, of course, the president... Played by Donald Pleasance. Somebody else who shows up in a fair number of John Carpenter movies. Yeah. And this People's Liberation Front type of group that has hijacked Air Force One. I guess they were intentionally aiming for Manhattan. Yeah, they, they kind of, they, they take over the plane and kind of state like, 
this whole Manhattan Project is inhumane and awful. Yeah, one of their demands is amnesty for everyone in the prison. Yeah, so we'll, we're going to lock you in your own maximum security prison since it's just an island you've walled off with giant ocean walls. We can kind of just drop you in it. So everybody on the plane is killed when the plane crashes, except the president who gets into this red egg-shaped escape pod, which doesn't apparently jettison or parachute or anything. It just sort of pops out of the plane when the plane crashes. It is remarkably like... The outside looks like something from 2001. The inside has this strange, excessive amount of like luxurious padding that we saw in um, Spy Who Loved Me, in that escape pod from the giant ocean thing. Well, we have not yet watched Mork and Mindy, have we? No. This is Mork's spaceship, painted red. Oh, no. For all I know, it's actually it's a- that It might prop. actually be, prop-wise. It could be, but that's what it looks like. Mork's uh, egg-shaped spacecraft, painted red. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, they, they, draw, they drop the president egg. And then people take the president. Yeah, he's, they, like the bad guys did succeed in that sense. They <laughs> dropped him in there, and he is in there now. And now it's the removal. And they send Snake in there to retrieve the president and this audio tape of critical information, which is apparently the only copy of this audio tape in the world. And they they send him in there to get the president. Of course, the pod is is open and empty the president's been taken he's and then it's this night of hunting around new york city manhattan partly on foot partly with vehicles such as the cab driven by Ernest borgnine yeah cabby best character looking for the president and eventually and... confronting the duke of new york who has taken the president into his custody because this is this is an air quotes prison because you're in here and you cannot leave. But it's also very much like kind of an experimental society because everyone is there. It is a survival of the fittest and they have formed structures and jobs and reputations and groups. There are different factions running around doing their own things, having turf wars and people taking leadership positions within these different groups and establishing a hierarchy. They have organized internally because there's no other structure to form them around. So they formed their own. And that makes sense. I mean, you've got this many people in one place. There are some resources, I gather, in the form of periodic food drops, but there's still the distribution question. So they have created this sort of feudalism with the Duke of New York at the top and these other factions, which have some degree of fealty to him. There are also the crazies who control the underground. And that means that if Snake is going to get the president back, he needs to find and deal with the Duke of New York. The Duke of New York, played by Isaac Hayes, in a really good role by Isaac Hayes. Very good role. He is is putting a lot of, in the same way everyone else is, playing to the back seats he is playing it without as many dialogue lines there's a whole lot of just presence in a room making sure that you know or action instead of words making himself the scariest guy there and that is good because it, it takes something to be able to do so to be able to take the title the duke of new york and put it into a non-verbal 
presence. But Snake Plissken does get to be kind of a James Bond spy character in all this. He gets equipped with some tech from a quartermaster-like character and dropped into Manhattan on a glider in a very Bond-like sequence. And he's got kind of that secret agent spy aspect going. And that's where we learn some more about his, uh, his military and special ops experience. He, um, he had, was decorated for actions in Siberia and Leningrad. Yeah. And the Leningrad operation, at least, he was piloting a, a combat glider or a, a, an infiltration glider, I gather, which is kind of a cool idea that yeah. you haven't heard about in, in military terms in some time. I know there was a lot of work and experimentation with gliders uh, in, in the 20th century, but this is a very high-tech glider that he uses to get into Lower Manhattan. And it's filled with all kinds of uh, sensors and, and radar and all this stuff. And he needs to land it on top of the World Trade Center. Yeah. That's, I gotta say, really awkward now. Yeah, seeing all these, the, this, the first Air Force One crashing into Lower Manhattan, this glider getting to one of the World Trade Center towers and landing on top of it. Yeah. Always, always an odd feeling. Yeah. But that's the only place tall enough for him to take off again in a glider and make it back across the river. Oh, and one uh, production point. When he's, uh, he's gliding in, we see through the, the monitors in his glider these bright green wireframe representations of all the buildings, the readouts from his radars and such, and his yeah. night vision. They couldn't do that with computers making this in 1980, 1981. Wow. Uh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. They built a model city and outlined it with fluorescent or reflective tape and shot it on film. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> they had, they, and that was their method of, of replicating this late 20th century, late 1990s um, high-tech sensor readout. Oh, I, I love that's that. classic John Carpenter team. This is the sort of thing where it's like technology caught up and kept going enough that I didn't flinch because I assumed... It was a readout. <laughs> Today, the glider and everything else would all be CGI because that would be cheap, but not then. Oh my goodness, that is, <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm going to have to rewatch that section. <laughs> oh, sweet. I love that sort of like prop and set design thing. So he's got a lot of technology working for him and with him. The, the glider, the weapons that he's been given... The radio that he has to co connect back to um, the police headquarters, a, a special tracer that he has on his wrist that he can in trigger. But he's also got some technology working against him. I mean, all, all this modern stuff they're giving him can really be a pain in the neck. Well, that and the small fission device they've implanted in him that's being slowly decayed within 24 hours unless they x-ray it un like inert. Which just feels like simultaneously, like, it's brilliantly undercutting the air quotes good guys. They weren't, they were, they're already shown as not being quite as great. And then it really just like, and you've agreed to do the thing. We're also still gonna booby trap you. And also, it feels like overkill as to how they're doing it. It's like, this will explode. And like, 
disrupt your internal systems and cause a very bad way to die. It's like, why did you go that far? Well, they did say they needed something that would keep him from just turning the glider around and flying it to Canada. But really, it's that, well, John Carpenter is making a thriller. He needs a ticking clock. He's not going to be subtle about it. He's going to give you a ticking clock, and the ticking clock is going to be strapped to the wrist of the the hero, and it's going to tell him how many hours and minutes he has before the ex- tiny explosives in his neck yeah. will be triggered. <sighs> that 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 bit was just wild, because I. But it, it's a good setup, but it bugged me. <laughs> And there's not that much else to say about the plot. Your summary of it earlier, where it's just kind of place to place as he's looking for the president and kind of climbing the ladder of the the hierarchy within New York until he gets to the Duke of New York. And of course, he's taken prisoner and then needs to free himself. And there's combat. That's the the taken prisoner. Like he gets almost there. He finds the president. He fights his way out and then he gets attacked. And that absolutely feels like a our our, our players roll to one at the wrong time, and next session you wake up being with your wounds being tended to, the night hasn't ended, and you're put into a cage match for the entertainment of all the people. Because it gives him a way out he shouldn't yeah. have gotten otherwise. He misses one stealth roll, and that means he's at a disadvantage. He gets shot, so he's at a disadvantage for all future stealth rolls. So the Duke of New York and his guys catch him. Exactly. It's like, ah, dang it. I made that encounter too tough. Let me fix this. <laughs> but the president gets highly traumatized, it seems. He gets kidnapped and beaten up and tortured and his briefcase taken and shot at and shot at in a way that's less antagonistic and that's still antagonistic, but it's for entertainment instead of murder. Feels weird. And He's kind of, he's payload, but also response character. It's and like, the, you yeah. have to bring him around if you can get him. But he's also just there to, like, react to everything. Because he's valuable to everybody. Of course, Snake Bliskin needs to um, to get the president out of New York if he's going to be allowed to survive. But the Duke of New York wants the president because he's planning to leave and essentially everybody gets out as the ransom for the president. I'm not sure how he really thinks that was going to work, but that was his plan. He keeps saying that, but he keeps describing it as like, I'll strap the president to the hood of my car and we'll charge the (laughs) gate. Right. And there's a little bit of a, either this works and we leave or a grand final statement as we all end and go to Valhalla because it it's it's this or nothing yeah maybe there's there was a bit of nihilism to the way the (laughs) king of new uh, the duke of new york's plan kept being described with its excessive grandeur there was a also a certain degree of pride and insane confidence that maybe he thought he could pull this off somehow oh absolutely he was he was sure of it but in the meantime the only way that snake plissken had gotten far enough to 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 get to the president and then be taken captive, or some allies that he made. There was Brain, not Brains from Thunderbirds, but Brain, ah, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton, and he was kind of um, the Duke of New York's... Chief scientist? Right. He's the one who managed to distill fuel uh, for the cars that a few people had, like Cabby and like the Duke. 
and also do things like map the and compile maps of where the explosive charges are on the bridges that give you a possibility of getting out of New York. Now, why the bridges weren't just destroyed when they walled up the city, I'm not sure. How do you map them without accidentally setting them off? <laughs> I wonder about that. And also Maggie, played by Adrian Barbeau, another person who shows up in a number of uh, John Carpenter movies. And she is... Um, her role... She is a tough fighter. Yeah. You also... Cabby's description is that she was given to Brain to keep Brain happy by the Duke, as if she's just a commodity. But then we come to see that either in the first place or over time, she came to uh, care for Brain. And it's, it's a typically weird late 70s, early 80s depiction of relationships and women yeah. in movies. but. Adrian Barbeau does a great job with that role. And everyone in the party kind of gets their own little moment, I'd say. Cabby gets, honestly, his introduction as Cabby, where he's in his car for the first time, is kind of brilliant. As he gives something that feels like a very generic, like, oh yeah, I'm picking you up, I'll, I'll, I'll drive you over to that place. While he casually pulls a Molotov cocktail out, lights <laughs> it, throws it out the sunroof with the chasing bandits and then just drives away like it's yeah. oh yeah that's a tuesday meanwhile he's smiling saying yeah could you imagine snake plissken in my car wait till i tell eddie exactly <laughs> it's just like, uh brains gets some very good like the fight's about to start and he just negotiates everyone down so that yeah. the people get into position he's just like no no everybody chill i can talk this out i can distract you i can do this don't listen to what i said a moment ago sorry about that never mind this isn't a distraction. Well, absolutely it is. And he's in position now. Bing. <laughs> and Maggie gets at least Maggie gets the really cool scene of just absolutely taking out a bunch of thugs and the Duke of New York's right hand man in one of the quickest like fights in the entire thing where she just pulls weapons and eliminates an entire group. Yeah, that's a little bit of John Wick. Yeah. In she's... the middle of this movie with, with her as a star. Like. Snake might be the lead character, he might be the tough fighter, but I kind of feel like Maggie has more firepower than he does. She can hit harder. And things with Brain are complicated by the fact that Snake and Brain have a history. And they worked a job together, and as Snake sees it at least, Brain double-crossed Snake. Yeah. But then apparently got caught and dumped into New York before Snake was. So there's a grudging aspect of that relationship. Brain does not want to help Snake because that risks his position as uh, advisor to the Duke. Snake doesn't want to trust Brain, but needs to in order to get to the Duke and get to the president and get this map that might get them, get them out of New York. Because in the meantime, a bunch of, I don't forget whether it was the Duke's people or, or a bunch of crazies, have destroyed the glider. I believe it was crazies. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, there are some interesting personal tensions going on there. Oh, yeah. There's there's definitely some some interplay there, and there's there's story, and there's a lot of world building. This isn't... this After it sets up its environment with that initial sending snake in, it continues to flesh out just kind of how outside the walls are not strictly better. There's a whole lot of 
war going on between different nations. There's a lot of betrayal and intrigue going on everywhere else. There's fighting in the command center about the fact that they're losing signal from Snake and the president as they keep going around from set piece to set piece and different things happen. And there's there's like, we're terminating the mission. No, we're not terminating the mission. Like, so whether or not there's even a group to go back to and deliver the president and payload to is up in the air. And that also reveals a little more about Lee Van Cleef's character who's the head of the police force that runs this prison. And we definitely get the impression, even starting early on from his first conversation with, with Pliskin offering him this deal, but also with his conflicts with the people from the other federal agencies that, uh, that want to pull the plug on this mission. He, he sees that Pliskin is a criminal who has been sentenced to this prison, but he respects Pliskin's ability. He respects respects Pliskin's military service, wishes things had gone differently for Pliskin. Yeah. And continues to count on him and to believe that he can finish this mission. Even after they lose contact with him, because, of course, the radio gets lost and the tracker gets lost, he still believes that Pliskin is in there and capable of finishing this mission. Yeah, he's got faith in the guy because he knows enough to do so. But it is interesting, you you make a great point about what all of this implies about the bigger world around it. This this prison and this police force and everything in there and everything about it is just so absolutely bonkers. You can either just say, well, this is a bad movie because this is absolutely bonkers, or you can start to think about, what the heck must the world be like if this made sense first to someone? Yeah, like there's implications. This is this is it, it was compelling. It was it was drawing me in. I it had a lot going on, and it it fills that out with not just the acting and the narrative, but also impressive sets of destroyed New uh, Manhattan and distinct styles for all the different groups. You can kind of tell the difference between a do. A Duke of New York's man and a crazy because they've got style choices there. They've got yeah. looks. And I'm going to have to get to it now. There's soundtrack is giving this thing a whole tone. And it's it's not. I I had an issue with the soundtrack. Yeah, I guess we have to talk about the soundtrack as as usual. The soundtrack is primarily composed and performed. By Mr. John Carpenter. Yeah. He he loves making music and likes doing the scores to his own movies. And I'm not entirely sure that's always a great choice. Yeah, and I have an issue with this one. <laughs> I'm going to get to tell you, uh, uh, audience, a story about when we watched the film. We're in the middle of it. I'm following along just fine. I'm intrigued. And then we hit one of the giant action scenes. It's uh, just towards the end, as they're kind of succeeding, then things start to go wrong for our heroes, as tension curves tend to do. The music shifts. Yeah, they this... get, we get to this like act break where we're about to go back and find out what's happening in the, the police headquarters. And it changes to this, like, supposed to be 
tense rhythmic synth section that's keeping the tension going. And <laughs> I don't know what happens next. I only got the description. As apparently, I start to droop in my seat. You were out. I don't know. <laughs> and we woke you up. You said you wanted to do this some more. You, you, you wanted to keep watching the movie. So we rewound. We got to that same section and you started going out once again. I don't... So we realized it was the soundtrack doing it. I had to put in headphones and have and turn on closed captioning and just play other sounds in my ears and keep watching because there is something about John Carpenter's synth soundtrack <laughs> that was just like an instant knockout pill for me. It was soporific in a way I've never experienced before. This makes me want to talk about the the pacing of this movie. Because it is an action movie. It has lots of activity. It has lots of violence. It is a literal ticking clock. And to me, at least on this watch, it seemed so incredibly slow. It seemed like, yeah, there are these set pieces, but I can't believe how long it takes to portray each one of these set pieces, and I can't believe how much kind of dead time there is in between them. I know we're trying to portray a journey through this fallen kingdom, but we don't have to see every step of this journey and have it take this long. He had 24 hours to go in and, and get out, and I felt like the movie was trying to show us that in real time. There's enough time for the GM to pull out the next board, set up all the terrain and minis, while everyone else goes gets more... Ch more snacks and drinks <laughs> in between every set piece of this, like an actual tabletop game. In some cases, the action blocking wasn't super fast paced within the scenes, but, but mostly as collections of scenes, the pacing was, was not brisk. No, it, it's, it's a trudge in a way that is both thematic and also negative to the cinematic. And the, the, going back to The Thing, that is a movie that was not super fast-paced all the way through. But when it slowed down, it slowed down to allow tension to build. I never really got the impression that tension was building during the slow parts of Escape from New York. They were just slow and we were waiting for something next to happen. Yeah, it was just kind of... There's almost loading scenes. There's like this, this, this waiting to trigger the next cutscene kind of element to this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, because the performances, I think, were all sharp enough. Again, the set pieces worked, some better than others, but they all made sense. And it's not like the movie had an excessively long running time. No, it, I it's... think maybe just another edit could yeah. have 
made this uh, tighter and sharper. It feels like it wants a director's cut. Or maybe a not the director's cut. A something cut? Yeah, that could be. Maybe maybe Carpenter is too close to his material sometimes and needs someone else to step in and, and edit for him. I don't know who, what editors he worked with and what his process was around editing, but this was only 99 minutes. Yeah. And I think even just trimming 90, trimming nine minutes or 10 minutes out of it would have given you a much, much yeah, make more it a engaging little, movie. Make it a little snappier and you got something there. Kind of is leading into our final thoughts there, but... I think so. Okay. So, um, it's a movie, screen or no screen? Well, falling asleep aside, I'm gonna give this a screen, but I'm gonna give it the, like, kind of, it's a great background thing screen. This is a movie I'd put on, except for that one part... When I'm doing something like sleeping up cards for a card game or doing something else around the house, it's not a it like because then I can in between those slow sections, get a bit of something else done and then look up and go, ooh action scene and then <laughs> go back in and just listen to the acting and world building talk. Without having to follow along as intently. So I'm saying screen, but it's got the caveat that I've given a few other of our films before. I found this a really tough question because, uh, I mean, I was, I haven't seen this in decades and I was looking forward to seeing it again, looking forward to showing it to you. And now that I've seen it again, I'm really not sure that I would recommend it. Oh, I'm think I'm going to give this a no screen. My caveat is if you are a John Carpenter completist and I totally get that you might be, and that's not a bad thing. Or if you are a Kurt Russell completist and again, not a bad thing to be. Then, by all means, watch this movie. You will regret not having watched it. But just for its own merits as a movie, I, I say it's a no screen. There are better movies to watch, better things to do with your time. Um, I wish it were better. I wish it lived up to what it could be. But it's not entertaining enough and not engaging enough to be worth a screening. For its own sake. Then we get our main three questions. Yeah. But I'm going to interrupt them for a moment. All right. Because I said I would be able to somehow tie this into our other Kurt Russell stories. Oh, okay. And I'm going to do that right now because tying these all together is just fun. And it's kind of one of these things I've been thinking of. The solution to how to tie this version of Kurt Russell into the Medfield College uh, Dexter Riley who then has bad experiences in war and becomes uh, our character from The Thing, is solved by a character Snake Plissken inspired, which would be Solid Snake from the Metal Gear Solid games. Of course. And light spoilers, but vague and not too hard to want of running into spoilers for that series of games. There's a whole lot of fun with cloning. And so my result is, it's absolutely one of the sort of things people at Medfield College would be experimenting with. And by the time this is happening, cloning someone would exactly be the sort of thing they'd do. Why is Snake Plissken such an excellent, perfect soldier? He was made that way. <laughs> A guy who's dealt with something so unbelievable, but come out of it 
or a guy being sent to something uh, so remote in the right environment, they'd have a sample of him on hand. They use that as a base, and they build the perfect soldier, Snake Plissken, who goes awry. And that means he's tied back as a clone. So when he survives the Arctic expedition, and he's the only survivor, then they, I guess we're assuming what happens at the end of the thing. Yeah. He is taken back, and he's studied, and he's cloned, and that's where we get uh, Solid Snake. And it gives you, uh, you <laughs> Snake Plissken. That's where we get Snake Plissken. In, in the way they, did, they do things with Solid Snake in those games. And that <laughs> allows for a sliding time scale of age and when it happens. It also implies the same sort of strange little too advanced for what they're doing and absolutely haphazardly executed technology we see in this story. <laughs> right. Yeah, that does sound like a society that would also create time-release explosives to inject into people's necks. Exactly. So I stitched it together. <laughs> Nicely done. Thank you. Whether or not this requires a revive, reboot, or rest in peace is a whole other thing, though. <laughs> it does have a sequel. It does have a sequel called Escape from L.A., which came out around 1996, I believe. I think so. And I have never seen it. Oh. Don't know how I missed that, but I've never seen it. That's the one I hear referenced more often sometimes. More often than Escape from New York? Yeah. Well, that's because in some ways the graphic design for Escape from L.A. was more powerful. And it was a little closer in time period to when I started seeing media stuff. So it was the more recent reference with a stronger visual aesthetic and had already set up the escape from blank format that some early meme culture liked to use. So I'd seen more reference and more, not narrative reference, but stylistic reference to escape from LA because it was part of a series at that point. And maybe we'll have to watch that sometime, see what we think of it. That might be a cool thing for Patreon. Oh, it might be, yeah. <sighs> I don't know if you can really reboot this. I feel like a lot of other things have given exactly the sort of product this wants to do with other setups and things. And in the modern era, you'd have to shift enough pieces because... The story in question doesn't fit the same, that it's very different, and I'm not sure it needs that. So I guess I'm saying rest in peace, but it also doesn't feel like they're going to ever stop. It feels like they like making new thing, new versions of Carpenter projects, so... But there is an effort underway to remake Escape from New York. But there has been for a long time, yeah, a decade that, or so at least. That feels like one of the things that's just going to stick around as an attempt. I will say if they do it, they have to get Kurt Russell to play the president. That would be great. Yeah, because it, it, it's shifted and there's a bit of a twist that they could have fun with by putting him in the other chair there. And there's a lot of fun to do, but it's like, ah. <laughs> and my understanding is that John Carpenter's view of this, he's not directly involved i imagine he would get a production credit but his view is that um yeah if they're gonna if he's gonna get paid for it he thinks it's a great idea if he's not getting paid he doesn't care one way or another that's kind of how he feels about remakes of his movies yeah. which is hey that's a healthy attitude absolutely oh by the way we watched this movie on uh 
John Carpenter's birthday. Oh, hey! So, happy birthday to John Carpenter. Happy birthday, John Carpenter. But I don't think there's even a uh, a cast set for for the remake. Yeah. Uh, looking at articles years uh, uh, old now, some people were suggesting Wyatt Russell to play Snake Plissken. Oh. But I don't think Wyatt Russell wants anything to do with that, and I, I can appreciate not. that. The last thing he wants to do is to be compared directly to his father in a role that his father made iconic. Yeah. No, what, what good is going to come out of that for anybody? But there are lots of, of other greater and lesser action hero uh, movie stars whose names come up. I'm sure people have talked talk about The Rock doing it. I know Gerard Butler was, was talked about for a while. Uh, Christian Bale was mentioned. Here's a weird idea. Rupert Grint. Rupert Grint. He, I'm wondering if he could do it. He's got the, he could, he could play the beleaguered, but competent in the right way. I would watch it. Yeah. I don't know if it would work, but I would absolutely watch it. (laughs) Okay. I don't suppose I have anything against a revival. Again, maybe Escape from L.A. was great. I don't know that they could make another one starring Kurt Russell in the same continuity. Unless it was Kurt Russell is an aging Snake Plissken and the action hero of the new movie is a younger person and it's now, well, the year 2022, maybe. Next clone. <laughs> or the next, but yeah, yeah we can't. <laughs> We can, we can say it's the next clone, but we can't cast Kurt Russell as a Kurt Russell 40 years younger than he is. I suppose CGI mocap, we That's can. That's what I was about yeah. to say, like, actually. I, I guess we could. Yeah. Terrifyingly. Thinking about um, what was done in, in Tron Legacy. Yeah, exactly. That's, quite possible. That's what's going through my head, too. It's like, eh. But I'm inclined to say rest in peace for this. Yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing the results of a revival or a reboot, but I'm not sure either of them are needed. So I'd say let this end Escape from L.A. Rest in peace. I think so. So I think that might be it for the episode. Uh, where, do they, where do they have to uh, send their, their soldiers to find and rescue you from, Dad? <laughs> oh, you can glide in at uh, MatthewFPorter.com or ByMatthewPorter.com, and you can find me on Twitter as uh, at by Matthew Porter. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as itemcrafting at itemcrafting.com or on Twitch as itemcraftinglive. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. That's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes, including The Thing from a couple of Januaries ago. And you'll also find links there to our Discord, to our shop, if you like uh, t-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that. And a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much to anybody who can support us there. You help keep the podcast going. And you get additional uh, audio content for being a patron. And you can also find us on Twitter at IMMPCast. So thanks very much for downloading this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Please consider sharing this with your friends or going to give us a, a rating on iTunes with as many stars as you like. Those are all great ways for other people to find the show. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.
Snake? Snake! Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun.